Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode 12 of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. And today I got to chat with my good colleague and friend, Dr. Thea Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher is a licensed clinical psychologist, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Langone Health, an expert in the treatment of anxiety and related disorders, including OCD, a frequent media contributor, and co-host of the Mind and View podcast, which is a podcast about mental health that I highly recommend checking out. And I invited Dr. Gallagher to come on the show today to talk in more depth about exposure and response prevention therapy for OCD, because as you'll soon hear, she's so knowledgeable when it comes to treating OCD and has an impressive knack for breaking things down in a really engaging and relatable manner. We covered a lot in our hour or so together, including the importance of ritual prevention, why we need to overshoot normal when treating OCD, and the rationale for something called imaginal exposure, which we didn't get to discuss in the last episode. And although OCD is not something to be taken lightly, given the havoc that it can wreak on people's lives, we laughed a lot throughout this conversation, and I have a feeling that you'll find it as fun and interesting as I did. So without further delay, here's our conversation. Welcome to the show, Thea. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on another uh, mental health focused podcast with a friend. So it's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy you're here. Awesome. All right. Well, I want to get us started today um, by following up on the conversation that I had last time with Dr. Lily Brown. So in that episode, we talked about exposure and response prevention therapy. And I wanted to start today by talking about ritual prevention and why this is such a critical ingredient in exposure and response prevention. So I think, you know, it's so important because we know that rituals are what maintain OCD. At the end of the day, the compulsions are what maintain the disorder. And so mm-hmm. if you're continuing to do the rituals, you're just really reinforcing this pattern in the brain of like, mm-hmm. every time I'm afraid I do this ritual and this helps me. And so if you keep doing it, like there's no way to have that corrective information. And so that's why I really stress how important it is for ritual prevention. And, you know, by the book, it's pretty much like, Hey, you should stop all ritual prevention as soon as possible. And that is our goal. But I think, you know, we can, we can kind of, as long as we're moving up toward 
hopefully 90 to 100% ritual prevention, um, that is how we know people get better. But I think it's really important to know the role that it plays. And the other thing I always talk about with ritual prevention is one of the things that I think people should think of as kind of a hopeful thing is that you are absolutely in control of your rituals. Mm. And even though it feels like you aren't, even though it feels like it's such a strong pull, like I absolutely have to, like zombies have not taken over your brain and your like <laughs> muscle groups. Like you can absolutely do this. The mental ones can be a little more challenging, but specifically like the, definitely the physical ones you have. And, and I also think the mental ones, you have mm-hmm. so much more control than you actually think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to explain that in a way that's not dismissive. Like, you know, if you just worked harder, you could do less rituals, but at the same time, just explaining to somebody, it can actually feel empowering to know how much control you do have over your rituals, even though in this moment, it feels like you don't. Mm, that is so empowering and so true, right? Even if those urges to ritualize seem really intense, you don't have to give in to them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, rituals obviously look different from person to person, but could you walk us through some general guidelines for ritual prevention? Maybe starting with those we would give someone with contamination-related obsessions? Yeah, I think you have to start with what someone's already doing as their rituals. So that's like so important to get that baseline, right? Um, because some people live a life that they think is pretty, you know, standard and you find out they're washing their hands 50 times a day, or they're using, you know, their hand sanitizer 75 times a day. And it's just such a part of their life. And they're, they are able to kind of like fit it in with everything that they're doing. So I, I think, you know, the easiest one to talk about with, with contamination is like hand washing. Right. Um, and so getting a sense of how often people are washing their hands, um, and, you know, I think the the normal way we think about washing our hands, right, is like after the bathroom, before we eat. Um, in COVID times, it's also been like, you know, after you've been out and touched mm-hmm. some sort of surface and when you come back. But, um, you know, what you find is like, where are people going above and beyond? So I do it before the bathroom and after the bathroom and before I eat and then after I eat and then I do it before I touch my laundry and after I touch my laundry Mm -hmm. and then I wipe down the laundry basket and then I'm also wiping out the washing machine. And then I'm also, you know, um, switching out my my, uh, sponges every day. So I think some of it is getting a sense of what people are doing. And I think sometimes that, you know, they, they have been doing something for so long that it feels really normal. This is just the way that my life is. So I think always starting with that initial monitoring and then moving toward like, okay, maybe it's quote normal to wash your hands after the bathroom and before you eat. So like, let's, let's start there. And then ultimately though, we actually want to overshoot the landing. We want to do things that maybe normal people wouldn't do. Um, which again is like, touch the floor, eat a sandwich, touch the toilet seat, eat a sandwich, um, you know, touch the knobs in your, in your house, eat a sandwich, that kind of stuff. So I think, again, you got to start with what they're already doing and then maybe move into the normal range. And then we want to move into the not so normal because OCD is not normal. Mm-hmm. I wonder, can you speak to that a little bit more? Like why it is so important to overshoot normal and you know, in the manual for treating exposure or for treating OCD with exposure and response prevention, it's suggested that, you know, there's no water on the hands, right? That you're not ever washing your hands during treatment, that you're taking a shower once every three days. And I'm wondering if you can talk about like, why in the world would we want to do that? 
Yeah. You know, I think we want to do that because we want to be one step ahead of the OCD. That's what I always tell patients. Like we want to be so far ahead of it that when OCD starts to scare us, we're like, I've done even worse than that. Like there's (laughs) nothing you can like scare me with because I've gone, you know, without showering and I've done this. I think, um, I think also what we've come to see as normal, sometimes patients can really double down on, well, that's what like, you know, a normal person would do. And I agree with them. Absolutely. Like that is what a normal person would do. Not to say you're not normal, but you are struggling with a very specific disorder that kind of needs to be, um, you know, starved out. And so in order to really starve it out, we can't kind of, um, rest on our laurels of doing maybe what other people can do. We have Mm -hmm. to go that extra mile to show the OCD, who's the boss, who's in charge. And also I I can live without doing these things. Um, You know, I use examples too for people like, yeah, it's not normal, but also like, say you were on like a backpacking trip, uh, you know, and you didn't have water or you ran out of power or something happened, you know, you would survive those three days. You wouldn't, you know, there's a lot of times, you know, in nature or something where you wouldn't have all the luxuries that we have. And so I think it's, it's really important to help to show that to people. And then also to say like, what's really at the core of this for you, because so much of contamination, you know, uh, can come down to disgust. It can come down to not just right feelings. And when you really try to ask people, Hey, okay, we live in a first world country, what exact, like, what's the worst thing that can actually happen to you from a bathroom? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if we kind of push COVID aside, cause obviously that was, you know, a real life threatening, you know, um, virus. But I think when you think about the bathroom, like, okay, you get the stomach bug, you could get like, you know, but you don't really hear a lot of times about like hepatitis A in the States, mm-hmm. like, because someone didn't wash their hands. And statistically, we also know a lot of people really don't wash their hands after the bathroom. <laughs> and if you've had a child, like, you know, I watched my child, like, you know, like put her hands on like city streets where like feces of dogs and humans definitely was. And then she's like eating her like puffs. Like, you know, so I think kind of realizing also the world is a disgusting place. And the, you know, OCD has tried to make you have like little safe zones and safe spaces. Um, and And that's not actually, like, it's not really based in reality. So getting people to really wrestle too with like, you know, they can hide behind it. It's just normal for people to do that. It's just normal mm-hmm. for people to not want to do this and that, but okay. But what's actually under that? Um, I think it kind of went viral. I think there was like a book coming back about like out about it, but there was like a meme about um, like, don't get into my bed with your outside clothes. Uh-huh. And I do think that's like, you know, it, it's people are trying to maybe normalize some of that behavior. And I, that makes me a little nervous because mm-hmm. the more germophobic we get, I think um, the more problematic it's going to be in the long term. And also, I just think the world is a disgusting place just because you have this illusion of your bed being clean doesn't mean that all the things you touch to get there you know, right, right. aren't clean. Yeah, yeah. And the more afraid of germs we become, like the more that, 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 spectrum of normal kind of skews, right? To the more right. extreme, right? And yep. so all the more reason maybe to overshoot that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and so I wonder, because I I think we were talking about this before we started, right? That like, mm-hmm. even among therapists, I do think there is 
not all of us do exposure and response prevention in the exact same way. And so you and I both worked at the University of Pennsylvania, working with Edna Foa, who really kind of helped to pave the way for this treatment, right? And put out the manual for this treatment. So we both really adhere to this, to the manual and try to aim for 100% ritual prevention when working with patients. But not Mm -hmm. every therapist does. And I think part of that is maybe even therapists own discomfort, right? And comfort, right? Like the idea that having somebody not wash their hands at all in the course of treatment, and then knowing that that person might come into your office, that can be a little unsettling for folks. And I'm wondering kind of for, for any therapist who might be listening, also for patients who are now maybe getting instructions from a therapist like you or I to refrain from washing, what would you say, like how, how might you help somebody to buy into the idea that that this might actually make sense for them. Yeah. You know, I think, so to help the patient buy in, I want to talk to them again about that. Like we want to like really expose the OCD for what it is. And the way to do that is to boss back the OCD, to go the extra mile to say like, there's nothing you can scare me with that I haven't scared myself with. And I'm going to, and I've taken it over the edge, you know, I've gone Mm -hmm. beyond, um, and I can handle it. And, and I think that's really how we starve out that OCD because if you give OCD an inch, it's going to take a mile, uh, you know? And so you have to really keep it in check. And the way we keep it in check is by saying, I'm going to do things that are really going to piss you off. Mm-hmm. Not just even like, you know, maybe justifying what other people do or don't do. I'm going to really do things that feel almost like wrong to do. Like mm-hmm. it feels kind of wrong to like, you know, go to the bathroom and eat a sandwich or to touch a toilet seat and eat a sandwich. Um, and so I think really explaining to them that the overshooting and the overlearning is really how you'll get back in charge. Now, my advice to therapists is a little different because I do think at the core for a lot, you know, because I've done a lot of consultation, there is this fear of harming their patients, you know, like I wouldn't want them to get sick. Like, I, and what if that's on my watch or that seems like, you know, relatively normal that they would want to mm-hmm. do that. And again, I think we have to get away from this like normal scale and really think like, we are up against a very debilitating disorder. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that Elna Yadin, another mentor of ours would always say is like, I'd rather you have a cold or the stomach bug than mm-hmm. OCD. Yeah. And I think we have to really identify like, what's the more debilitating condition? Mm-hmm. Like if you're throwing up for three days or if you're, you know, which would be probably the worst thing that could come of a lot of this, right? But like, even that is not as bad as the wreckage of your life that OCD takes. And so I think for therapists to remember like, and, and for them to also follow that thread, like what's the worst thing that could happen to my patient and to live with that. And we've all had exposures, you know, I've had patients where like we've put Windex on their arm and they had, they got a rash or something Mm -hmm. happened. Um, or, you know, that they, that they did get a cold when they stopped bleaching their their doorknobs (laughs) or they threw up or whatever their fear was. But I think kind of realizing like discomfort is not the same as like disaster. And um, I, I've been using this example a lot lately too. You, you don't go to your surgeon or like a doctor, you know, for maybe a procedure you need. And you don't go and say, the only way this is going to be successful is if I leave pain-free, if I leave mm-hmm. with like zero discomfort. And so I think sometimes in therapy this, and as therapists, there's this idea that we have to make our patients feel supremely like comfortable and you know, happy and regulated at all times. And I think what makes this therapeutic style different 
than what a lot of people learn in school is that a part of it is watching and encouraging people to feel worse before they feel better. Mm -hmm. And I think once you as a therapist can get that into your mind and then the more you see the results, I think that's what's emboldened me to be even more hardcore because I've seen patients get better and do better. And so I'm like, oh, you know what? When I was like hedging or when I was kind of playing it safe or doing those things, um, it actually, the patient wasn't getting better and they weren't getting better quickly. And so I think when you really get to see the proof in the pudding, you're going to feel emboldened as well. Mm -hmm, For sure. And I think there's a study, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a study that looked at like the extent of ritual prevention. And I think it was like those who, 80% of people who were able to refrain from ritualizing 90% of the time or more achieved what the authors called like post-treatment wellness, a Y box, Mm -hmm. a score on this manual, on this measure that we use called the Y box of 12 or less, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, symptoms being pretty low. But then it was pretty remarkable. If you look at this graph, it really dropped down. So if it was like 75% um, ritual prevention for those people, you know, there's maybe it was more, I don't know, it was probably like 50 or 60% of the people got that post-treatment wellness score. And then if you drop down even further, it's just like scores were, you know, people weren't responding to treatment basically. Mm -hmm. So it really Mm -hmm. just stressed to me when I saw that, right, that this is really critical. And I think we also, in therapy, we talk with, with patients all the time about like the risk of leaving in some avoidance, right? Some rituals. And it's just like, they spread so quickly, like a weed in a garden, right? If you leave even one ritual in there, if you allow that hand washing, you know, at this time of the day, well, chances are they're going to start washing again a lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. And OCD is going to come roaring back with a vengeance. Yeah. 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 And there's something about OCD that if you've worked with it long enough, and like you're saying, like the data reflect this, that, you know, there is something about, it's very pesky and it's very like, you know, it, it, it's like a, it definitely like a weed. It can survive on very little. And so you really need to be careful with what you are um, giving it. And, you know, even in the one study that I was running, um, you know, we, we used the P's measure, which is like a, a homework measure, but similarly looking at what percentage of urges to ritualize did you successfully resist? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people were at 90 and above, 90% and above, like you're going to see more results because again, if you're giving the OCD even a quarter of your time, it's just, you know, it's just waiting in the wings to take over everything. And so you have to really be careful um, with that. And you have to really like, I think, you know, getting to 90 or above and or spoiling. And that's why we emphasize so much, like don't draw a line in the sand. Don't kind of say like, this is off limits for me. Um, you know, I think that's, it's, it's just something to really consider because OCD, again, it has a way of kind of finding a way back in, you know, it's like a weed through the cracks of a concrete, mm-hmm. it'll find a way through. And so you need to be one step ahead. And that's why ritual prevention is a way of life too. It's not just a like, okay, I did ritual prevention and therapy. Phew, that's over. Right. Um, I've told some patients like, you know, you probably don't, you don't have the luxury to wash your hands every time you go to the bathroom for the rest of your life. Like Mm -hmm. you're going to every like fifth time you're going to have to like, even if you're totally in maintenance, you're going to have to kind of stay one step ahead or you can never use one of those toilet seat covers. Like it's just not in your Mm -hmm. future. Like why even let the OCD like have like a little bit of an in? No, we're not doing that. So I think kind of, you know, also realizing that in order to be one step ahead, 
you really have to, you, you really can't give it any, any space. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more there. So I, I want to, I want to talk about other rituals aside from just hand-washing. Um, yeah. but I do think right now with, you know, given that we're still in the midst of a pandemic, I think it might be interesting to talk a little bit about that. And about, I'm curious to know how, if at all, have your guidelines for ritual prevention when treating contamination-related OCD, how, if at all, have those changed, uh, you know, over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a question that comes up a lot. And um, I remember Eric Storch at a a, uh, IOCDF talk, he was talking about, like, there's like a spectrum of, like, you know, garbage people to like clean people. And he was like, you know, my wife is maybe like a six out of 10. If 10's like clean, he's like, and I'm like a two out of 10, like dorm room college student. And I feel like, you know, I'm all just naturally on that other end of like the two out of 10. Like, I just Mm -hmm. don't think about washing my hands very much. Like I've been, maybe I've been doing this work for too long or germs. Mm -hmm. Like they just don't trigger my amygdala, like at all. Like the idea of that, um, just does not bother me. Um, so I think when the pandemic happened, I realized like for me, myself, I was like, I, like, I'm definitely like, not like I haven't been following CDC guidelines, like probably mm-hmm. ever, but there, you know, I did not want to contaminate my family and my loved ones. And mm-hmm. like, I wanted to follow the recommendations. Um, I think, you know, I think what I've been very clear with patients is like, we will follow the recommendations, but we will not do anything above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of hard when, when it says like wash hands often, Yeah, like what is often, Yeah, you know? Um, and on, um, my podcast with my co-host having, you know, in maintenance for OCD, she talked a lot about like how, like, you know, it's like your worst fear to hear <laughs> Dr. Fauci be like, Hey, you know, don't go to Thanksgiving because you could kill your family members. Like that is like, you know, that's like her core fear. Yeah. Like, because like, if you were being ne- ne- neglectful or something like that, or like, you know, your life and the life of your loved ones is based on your hand washing. So like, mm-hmm. I think there were some very real fears um, and some very real things that came with the the hand washing of like, you know, what is often, um, because for some of those you need, that could be like, well, that's, you know, that's 200 times a day. Like, right, because, right. Like anytime I touch anything, you have to do that. So I was really, I tried to be very clear with patients. Okay. How do we follow the guidelines? Like, and, and you have to break it down. Like if we go to the grocery store, there was never a CDC guideline that said you had to wash your groceries or mm-hmm. so we're, right. we're not doing that. Right. <laughs> um, so they'd be like, well, I saw something on TikTok. And I was like, no, TikTok <laughs> is not the CDC. So we'll bring them home and, you know, wash our hands, put them away, wash our hands once again, after we kind of, you know, we touched them. And so I think there was just really trying to stay within the boundaries. The the truth is I did find that so many people with OCD, unless it was only, you know, focused on COVID could, there was a lot of other things that were not necessarily COVID contaminated Uh that, that I think their OCD was trying to put under that umbrella to allow for the rituals. So if they were worried just about germs or disgust or, you know, getting the stomach bug, your toilet seat had no more COVID right. than, you know, anything else. So trying to keep up with those exposures and what can we do in spite of the limitations. And I mean, now it's pretty interesting. Actually, there was an article that came out in the Atlantic a couple months ago about hygiene theater hmm. and really talking about the fact that we know so much of COVID is not 
contaminate, like it's yeah. not spread on surfaces. Right, right. Um, and so remember we were like leaving our Amazon boxes out for a while because mm-hmm. people didn't know what to do, but we definitely don't need to do that anymore. Right. And also just to understand, to follow the science, so much of COVID is respiratory, yeah. you know, um, spread. And so therefore I think kind of sticking to these rules of like, you know, tons of hand sanitizing and wiping surfaces down actually isn't probably doing that much to keep us from that. So yeah, again, I would say like, like really focus on following the guidelines. Also worked with a lot of health professionals um, and, and trying to find out like, you know, you and I have worked with health professionals before COVID mm-hmm. too, of like, we're not going to tell surgeons like, Hey, don't scrub into surgery. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> but, you know, we had the ones that were doing it above and beyond the protocol. Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, veterinarians, doctors who they would go above and beyond the protocols that were being asked of them. Right. And so um, really kind of stepping, stepping back from that was super important for me. Like just do the protocol, do not do anything above yep. and beyond. Yep. No double gloving, right? Nope. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's they, really and helpful. If, yeah. yeah. And, and if it wasn't recommended for this, don't definitely don't start making your own rules. And, you know, I think, I think this idea for people with OCD is like, well, I could just do one more thing or, you know, why not just be safe? Yeah. Watch out for that logic because someone with OCD, again, the luxury to do that, where does it end? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're not leaving your home and you're not living your life and you're not doing all the things that you need to be doing. And so I think I was really careful with like watching out for that logic because, you know, just being a little more safe is actually can be really dangerous for someone with OCD. Right. And oftentimes there's that fear of being responsible for something terrible happening. Right. And so it's like, well, if I just do this one little thing, right, then maybe I can let go of some of that. Um, But Mm -hmm. it comes with a cost, that long-term cost. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what you said too is really important to keep in mind, at least with COVID for, you know, any patients who are doing exposure therapy right now or therapists that, yeah, right. It's that we know how COVID is typically transmitted and it's not through touching surfaces. Like I also, my, my, you know, my kids now touch just about everything, even in the, and I don't have them wash their hands when they come home from school, even, um, right. right. I just let them come in and eat whatever they want. Um, and so I think like thinking about that, right. But I, I have been more cautious, especially for people who have people at home who are unvaccinated or who are more vulnerable. Like I'm not sending those people into big crowded indoor spaces, for an mm-hmm. example, without a mask. Right. So mm-hmm. there are still some things I do, but I think also what you mentioned earlier is something to keep in mind, right. In terms of the, like, what's the risk for that patient of not yep. doing these sorts uh-huh. of things, not doing these exposures. And sometimes it's that they end up living a life with OCD forevermore. And, and that's not really what we're here to help them do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not about like being heartless or, or, or again, like kind of being reckless, but there's also a lot of data to show that the world is a disgusting place. And like, there's some parts of that that aren't the worst thing for us. Obviously in a pandemic, we've had to think differently and clearly and things have changed over time, but you know, the, there, there, there is a lot of benefits to exposures in real life to general, you know, to building our own immunities. And like, you know, I remember when I was putting my daughter in daycare, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, you should get a nanny because then they won't get sick. And then like you read all the research, like, well, they're either going to get sick now or they're going to get sick later. They've got to build this immunity. (laughs) So I think also just remembering like to really like you know, follow the science. And and we do live in a culture where there's a lot of focus too on like 
disgust, like, oh, that's just disgusting. Mm-hmm. That's just gross. But I think you have to remember your brain is picking and choosing because honestly, like if you think about it, like intimacy with a partner is <laughs> pretty gross. Like you're eating your mouth and then you're kissing them and you're using parts of your body that are used for like, you know, um, like, uh, like, you know, excrement. And, you know, these are things that are part of our life that we ha- like have gotten used to, but it's funny because I just think if you're someone who's finding yourself doing a lot of this like disgust stuff or like just right, I get nervous even when I just see this in like, you know, regular media or, oh, that's so gross. Or, you know, I can't believe like we used to do this and we used to do that. Like, yeah, but you know what? Like you're not, you're also excluding a lot of things in the world that are really disgusting that you don't think about. Like you open the door to the restaurant or you, you know, hold the knob or you hit the elevator button or you pick up your phone or you touch your laptop that you haven't wiped down in years. Like just remember that your brain is also picking and choosing. Um, And so kind of watching out for, uh, you know, disgust culture is something I'm pretty interested in because Mm -hmm. some of it's like, you know, kind of an illusion in the mind too. For sure. And it's so interesting. I think there's often no like no logic to what OCD will latch on to, right? Sometimes OCD it just decides, right? This is disgusting, but this isn't. Or this ritual of, you know, touching this thing might help protect me, even though there's, I mean, like how, right? It, it doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't add up. Right, right. One of the things I really like to do um, with patients and it's kind of, it, it can be kind of like a fun facetious thing to do, but like let's follow the OCD logic. Um, cause I had a patient recently, she was telling me, she's like, well, you know, and, and like this thing is really actually like, you know, she's a scientist and she's like, this germ is actually pretty dangerous and da, da, da. And I was following her. I was like, okay, like educate me, you know, like I don't work with that material. I'm not in the mm-hmm. lab like that. And then all of a sudden we got down to it. And then she, I was like, oh, so like you're in the lab and you're worried you'd bring that home. She's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not even in that one. And so like my uh, my other colleague in OCD treatment too, we were like laughing about sometimes it's fun to like follow the OCD logic mm-hmm. and then to be like, okay, wait. So now you're worried that you're going to be contaminated by something you're not even exposed to, but that, like somebody else could have exposed to and been in the building. Like, where does this end? Like, then we are at risk at all times. Um, so I think- just sometimes question, you know, challenging your own OCD logic. Cause sometimes you can buy into the BS of the OCD. Mm-hmm. And I had a patient once, um, you know, and, and this is a fascinating part of OCD that we can just touch on real quick, but like sometimes those kind of um, big gains that you'll see in therapy, like you're working and you're like, oh man, we're slogging along. And then all of a sudden the patient can be like, have this aha moment. And I did have a patient who was really worried about HIV contamination. And we were doing all these various things and everything that was close to red would have been the HIV. Mm-hmm. Like it could come from, you know, the, the shower. It could come from, you know, it was coming from everywhere. HIV mm-hmm. was like literally <laughs> chasing this person. Yeah. And one time we were at a dumpster. We were like touching the outside. And she's like, you know what? Like if I'm gonna get HIV from every single thing in my life, like I, like I can't live this way. Like this mm-hmm. is insane. Like I'm gonna get it. Like then I should have already had it, and I'm gonna get it then from anything and everything. So I better just live my life. And it was kind of cool to see that aha moment because again, it does pick and choose, but then it's also saying it's everywhere all the time, right. and it's lying to you mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's one of the reasons, right. And treatment that we've just got to overshoot normal. Cause if it's everywhere anyway, right. Well then we've just got to do everything (laughs) so that the person learns they don't have to live their life in fear and letting that fear dictate everything that they do or don't do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's so freeing too, to like not have to live that way, not have to live like by the rules of one's OCD, because that's like just so tiring and so exhausting 
Um, and, you know, for, I always tell people the best kind of way to, um, to get over some of the rules is if you're around children or have a child, because they do not care about germs. And like, so if you're a germ person, like the amount of habituating you're going to have to do early, cause like you can't possibly keep a kid no. from like eating off the floor, putting their hands anywhere and then in their mouths. Yeah. And like, you just realize like it, it helps you. And so like, that's what I'm saying about freeing. Like the more you get used to it, the easier it's going to be over time. Just like with a kid, if you were trying to keep your kid from ever, you know, being contaminated by anything gross, you would just, it would be exhausting. Right. And so, so exhausting. the more that you're like, well, they're building their stomach floor and <laughs> they have to do, that's how life works. Um, you know, that I think kind of thinking in that way can be really helpful too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause right. The more we try to strive for control, oftentimes the more out of control we feel. And if we just kind of relinquish that a little bit and accept that our kids are going to come home covered in germs and then they're going to rub their faces or their hands all over our faces and mm-hmm. right. And they're going to touch our food with their germy hands. Right. The, the easier time we're going to have, we can roll with it a lot more smoothly there. Yeah. And you can expand your attention to the things that you'd rather, you know, be spending your time on. Yeah. And that's another thing I try to educate people on is like, let's take like some inventory. Like how much of your life is now obsessing about this stuff? And is that really what, like life is short. Like, is that really mm-hmm. what you want to be spending your thoughts on? Is that what you want to be thinking about when you're trying to like enjoy your child or trying to enjoy your life? Like, all the ways you could die or get an illness or something bad could happen. Like that's just, I think also realizing like, you know, OCD is definitely, it comes with a cost. And is that a cost you want to give up Um, where, you know, making your suffering work for me, work for you being a little bit uncomfortable or a decent amount uncomfortable, but then also being able to live your life with more freedom um, is where I think people who've been through this treatment successfully are like, oh, wow, I got my life back. Mm-hmm, for sure. It doesn't have to be consumed by these yep. worries. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I wonder, so uh, in the last episode we talked about, right, um, if you accidentally do perform a ritual, say, you know, um, you reassure yourself mentally that, oh, that thing's probably unlikely to happen. I'm curious in that episode, we talked about, you know, saying, oh, trying to spoil that that ritual, saying like, oh, well, no, it's probably going to happen. I'm probably going to get that STD, for example. And that's definitely one way to go about that spoiling. I, and, and, and one way to lean into the possibility of your feared outcomes. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about that, because that's one way for some people that that approach of leaning in and saying it's probably going to happen ends up not being so effective. Um, And so I'm wondering how you typically encourage people to spoil rituals or to just to lean in more generally. Yeah, I think, again, with spoiling the physical rituals, it's so easy because, you know, especially their OCD tells them these germs are everywhere. So Mm -hmm. like you watch, they're like, oh, you know what? I just totally like... I'm so used to washing my hands all the time that I found myself at the sink with soap on my hands. I was like, darn it. I'm like, oh, great news though. You can ruin that very quickly. Like you go touch your toilet seat, go touch yeah. the doorknob, touch the towel that people have dried their dirty hands on. Like whatever your OCD tells you, it could keep it contaminated. That It's so easy to spoil rituals, which mm-hmm. is one of the things I love about this therapy. It's not like, oh no, back to the drawing board right. every time. Like it's like, oh, wow, no, no, you you get the chance. You get to just mm-hmm. go like ruin it all. Like mm-hmm. you can get dirty really quick. There's so many, you know, vehicles to being contaminated. I think with the mental ones, it's, you know, it's a little bit harder because, you know, that 
and, and your brain can really be used to just kind of doing, like, I always kind of talk about like a groove, like that it got in, that it's just, mm-hmm. used to. um, and one of the things though, so it, it, you know, it's a nuance between like that probably will happen to me. I probably am that thing, or I might be that thing. Um, you know, I get a lot of questions about this from consultees because they want to make sure they're doing it right. And I say, what you have to do is go back to the source. What is the core fear of your patient? Because you could have a patient who, um, you know, is really worried about, you know, hurting someone else, but but their their core fear is different. Like, okay, I, I'm I'm worried I'd be held responsible, or I I'm worried that I would go to jail, or I'm you know whatever it is that they might be worried about. You have to get to the core fear. But I would say for most people with OCD the harder thing to deal with is the uncertainty. And even sometimes the like, I will get an STD or I will go to jail can actually be a comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard patients tell me like, you know, when I tell myself like, well, I'll just get locked up. Like it actually like soothes my soul because Mm -hmm. something will, I will be held for my crimes. You know, I will be, I will be held accountable. I will, something bad will happen to me. And so a lot of times I think leaning into that uncertainty and that uncertainty muscle, which we try to teach so many people with anxiety disorders to tolerate is so important. Um, And so I think for most people, actually uncertainty is harder than even the certainty of something awful. And so really getting to the core fear for that patient, but I would say nine times out of 10, I'm finding that I'm more leaning into that may happen. I have no idea. I have no way to know. And I have to keep living my life, not knowing, um, you know, and I think, you know, we see this a lot too, with people who have OCD around their sexuality, like, I just want to know, I don't care if I'm gay, straight, bi, whatever, uh-huh. but I have to know. And that would, that would give me this sense of security. And so the kind of exposures we do are reading about like, you know, um, like non-binary, you know, sexual identity and mm-hmm. just kind of how, you know, stories about people who maybe were attracted to one sex and then another sex or they, you know, like yep. kind of keep building in that uncertainty. That's just an example there. But I think the uncertainty part is what's really difficult for so many people. I mean, you know, all of us included to some extent. Yeah. I think we all have some aversion to uncertainty. It's hard to sit with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do, that's where I typically tend to land. But again, I think it is just really about following what, what the individual finds most distressing. But I do think often in OCD, it is that uncertainty. And that's, if we can go there, say like that might happen, that could happen. Mm -hmm. That's oftentimes the kind of the sweet spot. Yeah. Also, yeah. there's something I found with um, intentionality that hits at something too for patients saying like, I want to, mm-hmm. um, it ends up sometimes that can be really hard. Like mm-hmm. I had a patient where it was about like, I want to smother my child. Mm-hmm. Um, putting like, not like I'm going to, or like it might happen, but really like that's my desire. Yeah, Putting sometimes there's, you know, a lot of us have some little like, you know, superstitions, magical thinking to put into the universe. Like, I want my daughter to die today in a horrible car accident. Like even yeah. for like the most, you know, non-OCD person, mm-hmm. like just saying those words out loud, it feels a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, and so sure. I think also sometimes putting the the um, intentionality there of something maybe with like desire or kind of wishing it on someone can also be a really powerful way 
to piss the OCD off, which again is our goal. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that it's so important there to do that because oftentimes people have the fear that, well, if this thought is there, if I have the thought of harm coming to my child, maybe it means that I actually want to harm my child. Mm -hmm. And then that Mm -hmm. thought is usually really anxiety provoking. So the person tries to convince themselves, right? No, I love my child. I would never do that. Right. And so instead we want to go again, kind of a we want to overshoot normal a little bit and not just say like, maybe my child will get harmed or maybe I'll harm my child, but maybe I even want to do that. Right. I I want to do that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that's a really important point there. And, and I wonder, so for things like that, right. A fear of of harming your kid, for instance, um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what exposures might might we do there? Because there are some things, obviously, as therapists, we're never going to have somebody do something that's really like illegal or immoral that could really hurt someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would never, if somebody came to me telling me that they had a fear of molesting a child or a fear Mm -hmm. of killing their spouse. Well, obviously we're not going to have them go do that as an exposure. So I Mm -hmm. wonder if you can talk through, because in the last episode, we didn't talk so much about imaginal exposure, which is the other exposure we use um, in these cases. I'm wondering if you can talk through a little bit about what imaginal exposure is and and the rationale for it. Why, why we go about this? Yeah. Before we hop into that, what I will say is especially as working with a lot of like newer therapists, don't talk yourself into imaginal exposure too soon though. Mm-hmm. Because even like you said, like you can't, we can't really do anything immoral or illegal. Eh, you, can, <laughs> you can do some things that are immoral. Sure. <laughs> we are going to have people commit federal crimes, right? Like I'm never going to say like, we are going to go look at child pornography. But you know what? There are a lot of really weird pageants online yeah, where like yeah. kids are sexualized and that's legal to watch. Right. Yeah. But it feels wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes if you're a new therapist, I do also want you to like before, cause like sometimes therapists like, oh, I have to do an imaginal about that. I can't do anything. Illegal. Right. Like I remember one time we like looked up like, you know, funny, illegal things. Like, okay. If you take chalk to like a university building or like mm-hmm. people's cars, or, you know, you steal some spoons from Chipotle, mm-hmm. um, or some like honey packets from Wawa, like, <laughs> you know, like, or, you know, like stealing or like, yeah. you know, white lies, even like telling your partner, like I had a pasta for lunch instead of a salad, like, especially with scrupulosity, those things can be so helpful. So yeah. that's the only caveat I will say, because I think therapists want to be so clear. Like I would never make you do that. Right. And I'm like, I could probably make you do some illegal and immoral things. <laughs> I am not going to have you do something that's going to like, nobody's going to jail for taking right. a couple of spoons from Chipotle. But just, I think with OCD too, you can do such you don't have to do a ton to, to get at those fears. So just remember that you have that in your back pocket yeah, too. I'm so glad but, you said that. Yeah, <laughs> That's a definitely worthwhile point here. I meant more, I'm not going to have somebody go kill somebody, right. Or no, intentionally no. really harm a child, sexually abuse a exactly. child, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I just like to make that caveat because I think you and I are so used to like we we know how to work within the boundaries, but I think sometimes people really feel like I couldn't make someone you know, even like watch like, you know, kids in the bath on YouTube, those are legal videos. Mm -hmm. And so just realizing like there is more, so if you're new to therapy, I think that's why like having um, like a consultant that you can talk to who's been doing this for a while is good because we've got a lot of wacky ideas um, there. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, imaginal exposure is so important and it's, you know, our thoughts, like again, even to like the most, you know, non-anxious person, 
are, you know, having certain thoughts feels weird. Like even just like, again, saying something like, I want this person to die. Um, it, it just feels weird. It, it, it feels mm-hmm. uncomfortable. So I think letting yourself have the thoughts that your OCD is bringing in and, and really what imaginal is about is like bringing those thoughts out into the open. Like you're already having them, you're already suffering with them. Um, and I think remembering that thoughts are not illegal. Um, and, you know, even when people are like, okay, I have, I have this really like scary fear that, you know, I'm going to murder my child in her sleep that I'm going to black out and that's going to happen. And people are like, Oh, why would you even like think about that? Don't Mm -hmm. think about that. But the problem is you're already having the thoughts. So what we're doing as EXRP therapists is bringing those thoughts out into the open. And again, telling your OCD, yeah, you're already making me have these. Now you're telling me I have to like push them down and avoid them and do all these things to cover them up when that's just not going to work. We know thought stopping doesn't work. So we've got to bring those thoughts out into the open. We've got to egg them on. We've got to imagine it. And we've got to like, you know, yeah, in detail. Um, I, I had a, a patient once and we were, she was like doing really well in therapy and it was like around the holidays and, you know, again, fear of harming other people. And she was like, oh, you'll be proud of me. I was like Christmas Eve and, you know, all like there was a knife out by the cheese and, you know, she's like, I, I felt like my OCD tell me like, just make sure you, you know, stay as far away from that as you possibly mm-hmm. can. And she's like, and I knew in that moment, she's like, I had to just mentally like murder my whole family on Christmas Eve <laughs> with the knife that was there. And so like, we had built on the skills for her to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why imaginal is so, is so important is we're saying no thoughts are off limit e- either. Mm-hmm. Like thoughts are thoughts and we can have them and, you know, learning to tolerate scary thoughts. One of the ways I kind of explain that to people too, is that, you know, when you watch, like we've all watched movies with like gore and murder Mm -hmm. and things, and we don't all leave going like, oh my gosh, now that I've watched that, there's like a huge chance I'm going to go, you know, just start slashing people's throats. Like, no, we can differentiate there. And so that's what we ultimately want your brain to be able to do. But in the beginning, it's going to feel too close to home, but we still have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And for people with OCD, I think there's often a fear that even just watching a video, a gory video might make them act on those thoughts. And same thing with the fear that if they think about that might make it more likely to happen. And so part of what we're doing is like almost handing the the OCD the mic, right? Saying, oh, okay, OCD, right? Tell me what's going to happen if I don't avoid, if I don't engage in, you know, if I don't perform all of these rituals and we kind of like listen to that story over and over again and see how believable how distressing it continues to remain the more mm-hmm. we practice. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so usually in imaginal exposure, cause I think just for people who aren't, who don't know, right. Typically we would work together with the patient to kind of create a, a, a narrative of like the worst case scenario, the scariest thing that could happen because you stop avoiding and you stop performing all of your rituals And then what happens? And then usually it's kind of like getting to the core fear, right? So, okay, so you do this horrible crime and then what would be so bad about that? What would other people think about you? What would life become for you and for all Mm -hmm. you love and Mm -hmm. care about, right? Mm -hmm. So really kind of spelling this out in great detail, Mm -hmm. talking through this in session and then listening to this recording in between sessions for homework, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things you see happen is, you know, there's a couple of things. One of the things um, that we talk about is like seeing how absurd it is. Like, okay, well, like I'd have to, like all this would have to happen for this to happen. Like the thing I really don't want to happen. But, you know, sometimes that happens and people get to see the absurdity. And I've had patients say like, oh my gosh, that recording, I sounded so stupid. <laughs> that, that this could happen, like, isn't is wild to me. 
But then also I have had patients who are really tearful, just like, Mm -hmm. you know, tolerating that content. Like that's really the last thing I'd want. And I can resonate with them. Like, yeah, you know, we don't want you to, yeah, like you don't want your like, you know, daughter to die in a horrible fiery car crash today. Like I totally get that. But also like it's not happening today. Like or 99, we're 99% sure that it's not happening. And so we have to learn to live with that thought. Um, but one of the things I think is so powerful with imaginals is I I tell people like, you know what, if your OCD is scaring you with this, like let's make it work for it. Like let's make it prove it. And so if it's saying, you know, you're like the daughter that you love so much, like tonight you're going to go tuck her in. And then in that split second, you're going to black out and go into a psychotic rage and like, you know, smother her. And she's, you know, wriggling around trying to get away from you. And you're just like, nope, I have to do this. This is the only way out. And like, I think sometimes showing a little bit of the holes in the logic, not that that's what Mm -hmm. we're like, our ultimate goal is, but I do think sometimes that comes through when you're actually dealing with the full feared thought and and like trying to connect the dots than just like, oh my gosh, I could black out and murder my kid. Really saying, okay, like that would, a lot of things would have to go wrong in the exact moment. Like Mm -hmm. you have to be very coincidental that all that would happen um, in that moment to make that a reality. And I think, you know, people can kind of, again, see some of that absurdity, but also it's about tolerating the distress of, of thinking about really horrible things happening, but going back to living your life. Yeah. And I think oftentimes people don't get to see those holes in the logic, right? In the story, because mm-hmm. the initial thought of I could harm my child is so distressing. And then they get caught up in all the rituals and avoidance behaviors. So they yep. never get to that, that really, that whole picture, that whole story. Yeah. Yeah. Like that thought means that that could happen. So I might as well, like, I've had people who are like, I've, I've never been alone with my child because of that. There's the chance, yep. you know, it's like the whole, like, there's a chance. And so I think that's what we have to, the avoidance, you, then you start to reinforce that fear. Yeah. And the more you reinforce fear and you don't have that corrective information, there's no way out except to keep doing what you've been doing. Because right. obviously the only reason your kid hasn't been murdered that is because you've never been alone with right. them. Of and course. we need to do the exposures to show that that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and I'm wondering here if we could talk a little bit about, I think we kind of we mentioned this earlier, but I know for some people there, there's this like fear of putting bad karma out into the world, mm-hmm. right? That like, if I think thoughts, and I mean, you could probably find so many like uh, Instagram influencers, right? To talk about this, that like, you know, you are what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, what would you say to those people who are worried that like, um, you know, thinking about, being a certain person they don't want to be or doing a certain thing they don't want to do might make that more likely to come true. Maybe they'll become like a horrible student if they allow themselves to to think about themselves being that way. Right. Yeah. I think it's this, it's this interesting, you know, wave of thinking that has come into play. And I've actually, you know, I talked to the Washington Post about this last year, but about manifesting, right? Mm, There's been a real, a real focus on manifesting and like, kind of like if I tell myself, and a lot of it's really positive, you know, mm-hmm. if I tell myself like I am going to be successful next year. And, you know, I think there's something I talk about, like we all have so much like negative self-talk and doubt that I think some aspects of telling yourself things are going to go well. And like uh, the things I want are going to come true for me. I like, like, I kind of like some of like the positive thinking. I think you have to be careful though, especially I've had a number of OCD patients tell me like, it's very triggering because yeah what's on the other side of that? You know, like the other side is that if I think something bad, then that could happen. And then like, I have to like, kind of make 
you know, a religion about it. Um, or like, you know, I've worked with people who, you know, are suffering and battling chronic illness and people are like, well, if you just have like this positive attitude, you know, that's going to really help things. And statistically, we just know that's not true. So I think you got to, you have to be careful where it's about like, you know, uh, uh, these thoughts are my reality. Um, you know, I think saying like, Hey, this is really what I want. And I'm putting that out into the universe. Great. Like, you know, I think if that helps you and that makes you feel focused and goal oriented mm-hmm. and positive about yourself, especially like for our patients with depression, sometimes I want them to have a vision mm-hmm. for what could be good. You know, like right. they're like, I'm terrible and awful. I'm never going to, I'm like, I'd like you to think like, no, good things could happen to me. But I think, yeah, again, you have to be careful with like the bad karma or if I think a thought something could happen. What happens with a lot of OCD people or OCD individuals is that they're thinking more about the negative side of things. They're mm-hmm. not, they're not usually thinking like, oh my gosh, today I'm going to manifest myself winning the lottery. It's just totally <laughs> going to happen. So I also like, I like to poke that hole first. Mm-hmm. You're usually thinking about negative things happening. Um, and also like, you know, that might be a risk we have to take is like testing out the karma in the universe, like wishing something bad on someone. Let's see, does it actually happen? Okay. Yeah. Like if it doesn't, then OCD is lying at least some of the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, really getting people like some of that magical thinking, again, especially when it's negative focus, I really want people to like lean in, tolerate, get used to it. And almost like you're kind of like goading the OCD, like, oh, watch me wish this horrible thing. Like, will that happen? Um, And then, and then seeing that it doesn't happen can be really, can be really powerful. But I think also like, you know, again, if you're using positive thinking as a way to help you, wonderful. But if it's like, if I have a negative thought, that's definitely going to happen. Test that out, you know, yeah. because our thoughts are just not that powerful. No. And I think it, it gets a little tricky sometimes when people have a fear that where the thought, the thought comes up and then actually their feared outcome does happen. Right. So for, to some extent, right. They maybe not fully, mm-hmm. but they get almost what seems like some confirming data. Right. So maybe I'm afraid that if I do this thing that I'm going to like become a different person. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I do this thing that seems really anxiety provoking and I feel a lot of anxiety and then I'm, I'm in a social interaction or I'm at work and now I feel so anxious that I actually feel like a different person. And, and now I've got mm-hmm. some data to say that, oh, maybe this really was risky. Maybe I actually did become a different person because I thought that thought or I did that thing. And I think right. that can, I, I've, I found that can be a really hard place to sit, but I think it also can be a really powerful opportunity to practice leaning in, right? Like maybe that's the case. Maybe I am becoming a different person, mm-hmm. um, turning into somebody I don't want to be and I'm going to keep going about my life doing these exposures anyway, resisting those urges anyway, because I'd rather live as a different person than have to live with OCD forevermore. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think when when it comes down to it, like, you know, there's even like identity um, contamination, like you're Mm -hmm. speaking to emotional contamination, like someone else's state is going to put me in a certain way, or like, I'm going to become like this other person. And then, like you said, like, You know, um, the one thing you can point back to is there's a lot of social psych science to debunk a lot of this stuff too. Like, (laughs) oh, every time I get my car washed, it rains. You know, something about our brains want to categorize things too. um, And it's a way of them ultimately being more efficient because, but but it's efficiently problematic. And, you know, we even know with like racism, right? Like you you can like put, you you have an idea in your mind of something and then all of a sudden all all the subsequent things you see get filtered mm-hmm. through that stereotype or that idea that you have. And so I yeah. think 
understanding that that's the way your brain can work. But I always say like, let's do a really good science experiment then on your brain. Like, so how have you changed? Has anyone said that you've changed? Mm -hmm. Especially, you know, if it's this more abstract kind of idea, what what we, we want to do is like you said, lean into the uncertainty. Like maybe I have changed. There's no way to know that I am changed. Like, over, you know, we all change over time. Yeah. Like we're getting older. We're like losing our eyesight. We have to sleep different hours. We, you know, yeah. our, our, our skin changes. Like, what is it? Like every seven years, you have like a whole new set of skin. Like, so the, the truth is that there is some change. We want people to lean into that uncertainty and that contamination. And that's really important. Um, but I think also kind of realizing that I think it's, it's good to also hold in one hand, the idea that we're not very good scientists and like good historians of, ourselves. And, um, it's easy to, again, say like a negative thought made a bad thing happen, but where we wouldn't consider like, Oh, that positive thought I had is the reason why, you know, I won the lottery or something. Right. And we also don't typically uh, hold on to all the instances where we had a negative thought and then nothing bad happened. It's right. It's like the the ones that confirm that hypothesis that we tend to uh, hold fast to. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I'm wondering uh, also, I think it could be helpful to talk about where exactly, where to draw the line when doing exposures, right? You mentioned earlier, right? We typically discourage people from drawing a line and like a line Mm -hmm. in the sand, right? But I'm wondering like, how do we know how far to go when trying to go after OCD? Yeah, I think it depends on the instance, right? I think like, again, truly something that is going to send someone to jail, we're not going to do. Truly something that is, you know, like, again, I think all of us would say, you know, illegal. Yeah, like, but we've all driven over the speed limit too, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think sometimes like, I think when we can kind of push at like, okay, what are some of the things that we can do that, that are illegal, like, that are still within the realm of things that we have done, or, you know, even with, with scrupulosity, sometimes I've had patients who are like, well, lying is a sin. And I'm like, okay, well, have you ever lied before? Um, and what does God really care about? Like, depending on your religion. And typically it's about like, you know, the intention of your heart or whatever. So like, if again, you're telling your husband that you had, you know, a sandwich for lunch instead of salad, I don't know if God, like, and you know what you're doing because you're doing it to, to help your OCD, Um, you know, we've had a lot of permission from religious leaders to say like, yes, like this is about treating your OCD and not getting caught up Mm -hmm. in the letter of the law here. So I think, you know, do what you can. Um, I also think, again, you have to get past that, like disgust, like, oh, like I would never like touch a toilet seat and eat something. And yet, you know, just like, first of all, think about the fact that you, you've definitely like, you know, you've touched like door handles that people have touched, you know, like, like the world is more contaminated. It's not just those things. And sometimes actually we found out that the things that people think are the most contaminated or the least contaminated yeah. and things you're not thinking about are more contaminated. Right. right. So, but I think the, so I think with those kind of things, figuring out like where to draw the line, um, try again, going, going a step further than, normal. Um, and I think if, if you're really struggling with that as a therapist to consult with somebody who's been doing this for a while, um, what I will say with imaginals, like no holds barred, there are no thoughts that are off limits. And so I think if someone's like, Hey, I'm having intrusive thoughts about like having like a sexual relationship with my dad. And it's just like really causing me a lot of stress and anxiety. Um, you know, I know some people listening to this podcast could be like, Oh my God, that's like gross. Why would you ever do that? 
it's already in the person's head. And so we're just bringing it out into the open and we're saying like, all right, OCD, like Mm -hmm. it's like watching a bad movie, a fear movie. We're just going to watch it over and over until it becomes something that we're like, all right, OCD, like fine. Like there's nothing you can freak me out about. So, um, but I have had a lot of therapists say like, okay, that just doesn't feel right. Or it feels illegal um, to to have these thoughts or to have thoughts about molesting a child or to have thoughts Mm -hmm. about murdering people. But remember, like, if you or I were to take ourselves to the police station right now and say, you know what, I've been thinking all day about, you know, murdering my daughter. And then they were like, okay, well, have you done anything about it? <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, like have, have you held a knife? Like there's not much they're going to be able to do. Um, and so just remembering that thoughts are not illegal. We can have any thoughts that we want. Again, we can watch any movies that we want that have very violent and disturbing content. Mm-hmm. We've all had seen movies or shows about incest, rape, murder. Um, and so again, just kind of remembering that like thoughts and examples do not are not illegal, but we have to go there. And so don't hedge when it comes to kind of facing the music full on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay. Well, this has been such a great, interesting conversation. And I think I'm hoping that people will walk away from this feeling, you know, like that they understand a little bit more about why they would take this approach that really is so counterintuitive for most of us, right? Why overshoot normal? Why not do all these things that maybe help us feel a little more comfortable, a little safer, um, I think you did a fabulous job of explaining the risk and continuing to live with OCD calling the shots. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and the one thing I'll say is it does, it, it feels counterintuitive, but it was just last night I was at dinner and someone was asking me like, oh, how do you treat, like, we were talking about people who flake on plans. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, a lot of times, <laughs> like I imagine that they probably have some level of social anxiety. It just came up in natural conversation, mm-hmm. right? And they were like, yeah, what do you do about that? And I was kind of telling them, how you would do the exposures. And someone was like, that makes so much logical sense that you would just have them like make plans and follow through on them. So I think one thing that's so interesting about the work that we do is it's both counterintuitive and yet like facing your fears makes so much sense when you really get down to it. So it's about kind of finding that balance and really saying like, let's help people do the thing they're afraid of and do the thing their brain tells them they can't do because they're going to get better in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've all, we can all think of examples, right? Where we were nervous about starting a new job or about sleeping in the dark and we did those Mm -hmm. things and continued practicing doing them and they got easier. So you're right. It is in many ways intuitive. It's just, I think when it comes to OCD, especially, and there are these like, you know, taboo blasphemous thoughts, maybe it can seem counterintuitive to actually just bring them on and to sit with them. But that's a really great point. It actually isn't so foreign. Yeah. Right. It may be counterintuitive, but ultimately logical. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yep. All right. Well, well thanks I'm so much for having you. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, I just want to check yeah. in um, for people who want to follow your work, find out more about mm-hmm. you. Where can they go? So you can follow me on Instagram at Thea Gallagher, PsyD. Um, reach out to me if you have want to message me or have any questions. I love to answer people's questions. Also, um, have a mental health podcast called Mind in View with someone who is in maintenance for OCD. And we talk about OCD, but we talk about a lot of other um, topics too through kind of the lens of the clinical perspective and then the patient perspective. So um, yeah, feel free to, to message me or follow me. Um, and uh, also, if you're in the New York area, um, taking patients through NYU Langone Health now. So 
Um, yeah, but everyone have a, have a wonderful evening or whenever you're listening to this. And thanks Alyssa for having me. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.